Captain's Log, Stardate 8454.6. We have been having technical difficulties with the transporters, and they have been producing duplicates, evil clones, evil alternate universe versions of crewmates, mix and match crew members, sexy fan fiction style gender swaps, and has been turning people into children. To solve this problem, I have convened a commission to explore the ethics of <clears throat> dealing with these transporter duplicates. First question, is it murder to kill one of these clones if the transporter just murders you anyway? A quick editor's note before we get the episode started. We are talking about the transporters in Star Trek. We call them teleporters a lot. I kind of use it interchangeably. But yes, if you want to be nitpicky, the official term is transporter. All right, here we go. Hello, feeble-minded humans, and welcome to Set Podcast to Stun. The podcast where we explore, explain, and enjoy the Star Trek franchise. I'm Clint the Q, joined by Chancellor Emily Galron. Kapla. But <laughs> do you do that intro for Captain's Logs? I don't know, but we're doing it for this Captain's Logs, yeah, I guess. I it's mean, the no adults Captain's Log. So uh, once again, uh, Corey is just He's busy dead. this week. Yeah, He's... sometimes we just record record episodes without one person around i don't think have we ever done an episode without me no <laughs> it's on the heart and soul of this podcast uh yeah that's a way to say dictator that's funny now that i think about it there has there has been one episode of all things terror without me the one with jen and anthony yeah okay yeah you can cut that out anyway welcome to set podcast is done yes where we stun all things podcast. Where we pod all things stun cast. Yeah. All right. So this episode, we are, uh, we have our blood wine philosophy hour. It's like a symposium. There is a, a book. I think it's called Symposium where all the, the Greeks get together and drink and they talk about a subject. Yeah, because that was so for- actually, I mean, the book is what that event was called, which was Symposium. Symposium. They still, That's what they just yelled they at. They still have symposiums. I do like it. The blood wine. I don't think you drink all night. No. Yeah, it's a. It's like a conference meeting. It's boring. But I. Yeah, exactly. I really like the blood wine philosophy hour. <laughs> yeah, like back in the day, like Greeks, they would get together and, and like being like being able to get really drunk was a sign of like you were very mentally fortuitous like you had a lot of mental fortitude if you could drink a lot not like it wasn't like a biological thing it was just like oh i'm super drunk i must be, must be really smart. a smart manly man i mean yeah. this sounds really appealing but it's also basically just like every freshman dorm room you know everybody's getting whacked out and thinks yeah. that they're like discovering philosoph- philosophical questions and also sex for the first time in history so whoa what what if the colors that i see are different <laughs> from the colors you see you know i'm doing a rewatch of 30 rock right now and i think that's exactly the question that pete asks jack donaghy when they have like their college night <laughs> oh yeah 
<laughs> I feel like they, that's the quintessential, like, idiotic, my first philosophy, yeah. you know, like, question. <laughs> so, on today's Captain's Log, we're going to talk about the teleporters in Star Trek. And one of my favorite philosophical questions is whether or not the teleporter murders you basically (laughs) this is just like a fun thought candy in i was a philosophy minor in college and i took an identity class and we talked about this for a segment of the class like we wrote a paper on it i think or just talked about it but the question is whether or not the person who steps into the teleporter is the same person that is teleported reintegrated at the other end of of the process so the goal of the teleporter is to not kill people, I think, is one of the goals. Well, otherwise it's a yeah, murder Yeah, murder porter. Mm-hmm. I like that. So the question is, is or the, the idea is someone, you know, walks onto the, the teleporting pad and they go, energize. And then they do the dials. You got to make sure the dials reach all the way to the top or it doesn't work or maybe all the way to the bottom, depending on the teleporter. I mean, in TOS, a slide it's thing. a slide. Yeah, like... Uh... When you're in a recording like studio. Like on a mixing board. Yes, yeah. mixing board uh-huh. is the phrase I was looking for. Thank you. But I, yeah, I think in other ones, it's just the glass that they have. Anyway. They automate it. So the question is whether or not, like, if you step onto the, the teleporter, if the person, like, just dies, right? So you step on and then it just goes black. And then at the other site, there's then a duplicate of you who reappears there and they they were just like oh i was just stepped into the the teleporting pad and now i'm here well because the okay so the philosophical question comes from the theory that the way the teleporter works is that it makes an exact copy of all your molecules and then vaporizes you and then 3d prints a new you from that copy identically in the new location not exactly so according to Memory Alpha, the Wikipedia for Star Trek. So basically, right, they set coordinates. That's like the transporter lock. Sure. That tells it where to go. You are then scanned by a computer. You are scanned and then simultaneously like an energy beam breaks you down to some apart- some atomic particles, which is called the matter stream. Right. Then there's a transporter signal that is transferred to the pattern buffer, then again transferred to an emitter array. Then the matter stream uh, is then transmitted to the destination across a subspace domain. And then according to a TNG episode, this whole process, you don't feel a thing um, while it happens. This is almost exactly how the Wonka vision works in the original Willy Wonka movie with Gene Wilder. Except Which you get I, tiny, yeah. tiny little bars. Yeah, except that in that one, it shrinks it down. But also, very weirdly, I, I think this is like the second time we've referenced that movie on this podcast, which mm-hmm. I never thought would happen. There's a great Ars Technia article by XAQ, Rents Tell Me, or something like that. But um, this article was really helpful with sources. Is beaming down in Star Trek a death sentence? Isn't X a sh sound in Chinese? I don't know. I have no clue how this name works. I hope I'm not disrespecting the person who wrote this, but I'm not sure. Yeah. How, how it, it's like, I would think it'd be a weird way of doing Zach, but it could be like 
Shao something. Yeah, yeah, I think it might be something like Shao. Anyway, so what happens, according to this article, it's uh, also quoting the Star Trek Next Generation technical manual that they wrote in the 90s. But basically, uh, the computer uses molecular imaging uh, scanners to scan their body um, and then a person is converted into some atomically debonded matter stream and then they're beamed and then they're put back together so the atoms that make up the quote duplicate or the person at the transporter site it's the same atoms that makes up the original person but there are you're right there are instances where they use different matter to reconstruct people. Yeah. So there was one time where like like an entity took over Picard's body and then took him into the transporter and they transported into a nebula and then they like got his his like neuro signal or like his consciousness back from the nebula. It was in the Enterprise for a while and then they had his like physical pattern from previous transportations so they just reconstructed his body using new atoms and then put his like neural signature back into captain picard yeah i feel like there's another one where someone like it must be tng where someone like the signal gets interrupted and they get like the signal like gets dropped while they're like before they can get rearranged and somehow they're able to like tap back into it and get them back. I well, like remember. there's one episode where I know Jordy and Ensign Rowe are like teleported back from a Romulan ship right before it explodes. Yes. And the like explosion like changes their phase so they can like walk around the ship, but no one can see them yes. because they're out and interact with them because they're out of phase. This that's the one. There's I'm thinking there's of. also another. I think there's a great uh, episode where Riker, in a previous mission, uh, there's like some weird planet where they can only transport down, and there's only like a certain window because of like ionization or something like that. You can only transport up or down from this planet. Like oh, in windows. yeah. Is this where and every hundred years or it something? It was like weird? every seven years, okay. I think. So they transported Riker up. He barely made it back. But like the transporter operator like made a second angular confinement beam, but he didn't need to do it. And so one beam was like deflected back to the surface and then another beam made it to the ship. So there was two Rikers. Two Rikers. Yeah, duplicate Rikers. And at the end of the episode, they're like, well, they're both the same person, but they've been living separate lives for the last seven years. Yeah, I remember that. I Okay, so we've discussed what can happen and what can go awry, so, or how, how it works and how it doesn't work. What is the philosophical question born of this? Like, it's just a great way to examine, like, identity, like, what makes you you, you know, is it your memories? Is it the physical atoms that you're made up of? Is it your brain? Is it your soul that makes you you? So I think that's like a, just a really interesting way to explore these problems. Um, there's a kind of like two, like there's interesting wrenches you can throw in this one where like, you know, they start the transporter, but then something goes wrong and you're not actually destroyed. Your original body isn't destroyed, but then like a duplicate body is created with, it's another person who thinks they're you at the, at the other end of the transporter. Like who's the real you? Are you both you or, or that yeah. sort of thing? 
I, I mean, it's interesting. I originally went into this thinking that this would be like a ship of Theseus question. Um, but you're right. It is kind of, I guess, this question of what is the relationship between consciousness and the body? Mm-hmm. Well, and the real question is, I guess, too, that in the in in the context of a Star Trek podcast, the I think the question we're trying to answer here is, does the transporter basically kill you? And then create a copy on the other end. So instead of you stepping onto the transporter booth and just then a second later, you're like, oh, I'm in a different place. You just go black from your perspective, the original person's perspective. You would walk into a teleporter. You're just completely atomized, like vaporized. Yeah, but I mean, you, you said in your sources that they're not actually copying the atoms. They're just taking them apart and putting them back yes, together. But that's a good question. You talked about the ship of Theseus. Which, for those who haven't heard of the ship of Theseus, it's about a guy, Theseus, an ancient Greek guy who has a boat, and he's very fastidious about his boat maintenance. So anytime anything wrong happens, like if a plank gets rotted, he'll immediately replace it with a new plank. And then over time, every you know scrap of wood on that boat is replaced. And so is it the same boat? Is it a different boat? And that sort of thing. But... The parallel for this question would be if you had a boat and you painstakingly took it all apart and tracked like which nail went in which hole, right? You just uh, painstakingly reassembled it somewhere else. Yeah. And then you exactly reassembled it like every nail is in the same place. Is it the same ship if it was just taken apart and, and reassembled somewhere else? Well, I I think there's a really, I mean, not to get too deep into philosophy, because some people like that, and some people are already banging their heads against the wall, but um, there's this early, like, 1930s era philosopher, Walter Benjamin, that has this really interesting essay, um, It's called, I think it's called, like, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Mm-hmm. Have you read him? No. So he, um, he has this essay about... You know, it's like 1930s, I think. Yeah, it must be. It has to be. But he's starting to talk about how because manufacturing is now getting so good, you know, people don't have to make things by hand anymore. So what does that mean for something like art? Like, you know, before you needed someone who had great skill to paint a picture of a horse. Well, now you could reproduce that painting of a horse a hundred times over and it would look exactly the same with a machine. Um, but does it mean something to see the uh, an original painting created by a human? Um, and he talks about, like, it shouldn't, but it does. Like, And you can think about it even today. We still go to museums. You know, even if we can see a chair, you know, just sitting somewhere and a chair in a museum, and we know the chair in the museum is the one that Thomas Jefferson sat in, even though that chair looks identical to the one in your house, and it's from the same era and whatever, it's the, there's something special about that. There's something special about these things that were made by humans or that like interacted with humans. And so he has this philosophical idea called an aura and it's the aura of the thing. And it's because Mm -hmm. it is like invested with the humanity of the people that interact with it. And then of course, this whole thing is that he's, he's a Marxist. So he starts saying that like, the we're seeing the labor like the ghost of the labor 
of the humans that's put into it. And that's why these are. <laughs> anyway, it's really interesting. It starts sounding kind of weird and wacky. Um, no, I'm tracking you. Yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. That's kind of what you're arguing is that in that sense, then maybe Star Trek lives in an aura la like lacking world. It's kind of like a similar concept to a soul, right? Right. That we have souls like in some philosophies or religions, how you derive your identity is you have a soul, a soul that is unique. immutable. Yeah. Yeah. And can't be damaged or whatever. And that's how you get, um, that's how you derive your identity. It's yeah. from, from your soul. So I would, um, I would, so, so I would argue that then Star Trek has, is a world that's become so mechanized that, that there is no, aura there is no soul in anything so that's why mm. this question doesn't bother them why the transporter doesn't they don't see it as uh, as like somehow harming your integrity because there's you know it's removed we're kind of it. jumping the gun but i do like this idea that in the future they know that it kills you and it's just so convenient that they don't care and they're like oh yeah there'll be a duplicate of me or a version of me running around anyway. Oh my God. Um, of course people would do that. There would be no worries. <laughs> like think of what you do in your day-to-day -day life, like smoking cigarettes, driving a car. Like if, if you could not sit in traffic for an hour and you had to sit in traffic for an hour to go to work and they're like, yeah, we'll kill you and create a real. Oh, Absolutely. You could just die. There would be no hesitation. Nobody would even care. Like, no. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People will go like this for gangbusters. I do want to talk about, you talked about a soul, and this idea is brought up in a novel, like one of the first, or the first Star Trek novel, called Spock Must Die. It was oh, published my. in 1970. Um, but it has to do with the Organians. Do you remember who they are, Emily? Nope, not a clue. Okay, it's in the... <laughs> the uh, the episode where the Klingons are introduced, you know, is there, there's that planet, Organia, that right. they're fighting over. Right, the Organians, yeah. they're the non-corporeal, they've transcended corporeal form and they just came down to be, uh, make Kirk and others feel more comfortable with yes. that corporeal vision. So there's like, a the story revolves around them, but like, Scotty, like, does uh, like something happens to Organia and like they can't enforce the truce anymore. And so the Klingons and the Federation are at, at war and they have to, the enterprise has to figure out what's happening. And Scotty figures out a way to like um, use tachyons to make someone to like create like a copy of someone or like transport them super far. And they transport Spock onto the planet and, um, there's two Spocks and one's evil and they have to figure out which is the evil one. Of course. So anyway, yes, yes, of course. We should, um, we should have a captain's log about tachyons. What are they? What do they do? <laughs> tachyons up all the time. They are one of those things that was like, just throw some tachyons in there. Yeah. It explains everything. I think they have to do with time. The duct tape Most of, the... of the Star Trek yeah. universe. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, in that, uh, in that art or in that book, McCoy, he doesn't like the teleporter and he's like, what happens to the soul when you're teleported or that sort of thing? This is the thing. This is my theory with McCoy that that I think works out is 
and Walter Benjamin is that he says it's the interaction with the human being that gives something its aura, this like magical feeling of something more, this meaning. And my theory is that all mechanization, all fabrication, all creation, all making of things is so automatic. It's so mechanized that there's no aura in anything that in the Star Trek universe. They they have all their food is like replicated. Mm. They live on a ship. Presumably their clothes are just destroyed and like replicated every morning because everybody basically I always wonder about that. I feel like I would think this is what I this is my headcanon is they have like a closet or something that they just like in the like they have their futuristic nightgowns or whatever Picard wears his pajamas or whatever. Deep Um, V pajamas. Yeah. Yeah, everyone is just wearing deep V pajamas. Yeah. Well, and then are. you just stand in a closet and it breaks down your clothes and then it re-sintegrates, re-sintegrates re re clothing on you. Yeah, I agree with that. But this does play into my ultimate theory, which is that in the future, everything is auraless. Everything is mm. this sort of sanitized, reproducible, copyable. Like it doesn't have that emotion and so that's why like that's one of the reasons why there are all these everyone's really invested in the arts especially in tng you know everybody's always acting and painting and people are trying to find that emotion because they know that that's something that isn't in their life but because they don't have that feeling naturally they don't care if the replicator is killing them or is like like everything is mechanically reproduced in the same way, so everything sort of has the same flat mm. value. Uh, so, are you saying that like once you like step into the teleporter, are you you're washed of your aura? Yeah, but like that philosophical question wouldn't even interest them because they have no frame of reference for it. Like they don't have anything mm, to compare mm-hmm. it to. Yes, um, we'll talk about how they kind of grapple with these questions like in in the fiction itself but so right now as it's explained to us what would you how would you come down on the question of of whether or not it kills you and whether or not you're the same person on either end what would you say my ultimate answer let me think about this for a second okay so my answer would be the way it's explained right now is that it does kill you and you're not the same person on either end and my hurdle is that it breaks you down on a subatomic level, even though it does put you back together. Yeah, the connection, for the connections between the atoms. Are yeah, different. and you, well, but it and but you're still like, yes, like every atom is in the same place, and it gets every like you, but like you're breaking, you're broken apart on like the subatomic level, and then transferred as a mass of subatomic particles to another location. And then you're re assembled constituted. Yeah. I was, I was going to say like congealed. You're re-congealed. <laughs> Gross. As another, I don't know. It's like taking apart a Lego castle, putting it back together in another location. I just don't think, I don't think it's this. I think you've kind of like destroyed that thing. It doesn't matter if you've taken 
the building blocks of it and completely replicate it with its own building. Right. Because you, the aura has changed. That's the thing. It's identical to the eye, to every sense, to any way you could measure it. It's the exact same thing, but it isn't. And that's what Walter Benjamin calls Mm -hmm. the aura. I think like why this becomes a philosophical question and also an interesting sci-fi trope is because it's asking what if like physical matter could behave the way that light does or sound does, you know, travels through these waves and does all this stuff. But like, I don't, I'm not very well versed in this. Uh, My partner has been watching these videos on like physics that I hear from time to time, but even like particles, like light particles and universe particles, whatever behave differently when they're being observed than when they're not and they do things that like don't make sense to the laws of physics so even to that sense there is this question of like this thing that is theoretically not conscious or even like capable of moving or choosing in any way that we would think of something living it's just a particle it does things that we can't quite explain And so in that sense, maybe we don't know what consciousness or selfhood is even enough to know when it was changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, and there is a question of whether or not our identities or our sense of self is just an illusion anyway. So it would just be the same illusion in just a different kind of place. I mean, the other question too, though, is, you know, this idea of, okay, well, then you're not the same person. But what about... Have you ever been put under anesthesia? Yes. Yeah, like, that's another interesting philosophical point. Because, like, so, you know, when I was put under anesthesia, I, like, closed my eyes and opened them. I thought I blinked. And I was like, oh, are you going to do the surgery? And they're like, oh, yeah, we already did. And I was like, what? And so time did not change for me. Like, that, I essentially, from my perspective, I teleported. (laughs) Like, I teleported (laughs) from one place to another with a nose that had been, like, a septum that had been, you know, undeviated or whatever. Or if it's like if you get drunk and pass out on an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, But to an observer... You are the same consciousness. You are traveling through space and time in an entirely predictable, not exciting way. But like to your subjective experience, you just teleported. <laughs> are you, you know, are you the same? <laughs> There's a good to uh, a good quote from Michael Okuda. Okuda. A good quote from Michael Okuda. He is like the technical advisor for Star Trek, like TNG. Oh, so he's the one we can blame for Technobabble. Yes. Yeah. He's uh, he's the technical consultant for different Star Trek shows and, and movies and stuff. That'd be a fun and He's job. the one who, who wrote the Star Trek Next Generation technical manual that kind of like pseudoscience explains everything that happens, like how everything works. He was on the uh, Engage podcast, which is, I guess, the official Star Trek Next Generation podcast or something like that. Oh, wow. But he was on the show. And so he said, this is a quote from the Ars uh, Technia uh, article, quoting a podcast, being quoted on another podcast. (laughs) Uh, Star Trek's transporter has generally been thought of as a 3D version of a television it is said to scan yeah. a person atom by atom, convert them, convert the atoms to energy, 
beam the energy to another location, then to convert the energy back to matter in the original pattern. Some have suggested that this is the equivalent of destroying the person at the atomic level, then creating an identical duplicate at a different location. If this is true, then it seems possible that you have killed the original person and created a duplicate who probably doesn't remember dying. And then later on, he says, uh, by the time Rich uh, Steinbach, which is the other guy who wrote the manual with him, and I wrote the TNG tech manual, the matter energy conversion process has already been well established in Trek lore. So I felt we needed to respect that no this notion. If we had written the book much earlier in Trek's history, I think I would have pushed an alternate concept in which the continuity of a person's existence is unambiguous interesting yeah so i think according to him he's like yeah this is pretty iffy of whether or not it destroys someone or not but if but he thinks that it doesn't or if he had his druthers it wouldn't if he would have created it he would have probably flavored it a bit differently or kind of like went into the technical aspect of it differently to make it seem more clear more cohesive yeah and i think like i said the problem for me is that they're broken apart on a some subatomic level i think even at an atomic level if they were broken apart and beamed over i would still think that you're killing someone and then just reassembling a version of them i mean that's interesting too so one i love that he said that it's like a tv because that's what i said with the wonka vision mm -hmm. but also then this is an interesting question because in watchmen that's what makes dr manhattan is he's torn apart on a subatomic level and then he's able to reassemble himself so through the process of doing that he gains the powers of atomic mm -hmm. energy and he's also like He's been separated from his physical form, though. Like his consciousness is, ripped is out, no longer, yeah. yeah, is no longer like linked to his physical form. And his consciousness is able to create a physical form that it can control, but it's not really him. Yeah. Well, I think, too, it's worth pointing out that, I mean, maybe you'll correct me on this, but I think Star Trek is supposed to be like a post atomic world. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Dr. Manhattan happened pre-Star Trek, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was written after Star Trek. I mean, but... obviously, but in, yeah. in chronological order. Yes, yes. So, okay, so I've been doing some more, some research and some reading on this. So here are my ideas on how you would, you would like preserve the identity better of the person who is being teleported. So Akuda talks about this where it's like some kind of like extra dimensional space, but like basically like maybe if you're teleported, you're like converted into, or you're like kind of put into like a pocket dimension and that pocket dimension is like sent somewhere else. So you're not being like deconstructed on a molecular level. You're just like maybe like too converted into energy, but everything's kind of intact just like in a different state or phase and that energy is then sent over and then just re-phased back into reality yeah it's like a pocket you kind of like somehow put it in a pocket universe and then the pocket moves and then yeah you get, or yeah. maybe too like you're converted into energy right like a type of energy but the energy is still like cohesive and like together yeah it's just Right. And then that energy is like 
sent over like it's almost like if if you're i don't know applying a current to a person or energy to a person and once that energy is not being applied to them anymore they like kind of like come back into their original state so they're like turned into energy but not just like broken down and then sent somewhere else yeah see i i think that it does kill you maybe not kill you like it does in that movie with Hugh Jackman exactly but it is essentially like changing you in a way that you're Are not Are you talking the same about person. the prestige? The prestige, yeah. yeah. Uh but nobody cares. I think it does yeah. kill them. It does philosophically say you are not the same person but it's just such a aureless world that it doesn't matter. Not to spoil mm-hmm. the ending for anybody but if you haven't seen the prestige that's such a good movie. And, uh, it, yeah, they do kind of this copying and then murdering a copy does come up. So another way I, I would think, and they've kind of bring this up too, is kind of like a dualist teleportation where your like consciousness, like during the teleportation process, your consciousness is like taken out of your body and preserved in some media. They talk about this a little bit. Um, like you have like a neural signal. Yeah. So like that's what you really are is this like signal, right? Like your your consciousness and, and your they, identity. They like 3D just, print you a new body. Yeah. Um, but where you're just like, I mean, you're just like an electrical phenomena, right? Like that's what a person really is, is just their brain sparking and you know exchanging ions and doing this thing but that's what your consciousness is is this is just this kind of electrical phenomena so you just separate that from the body and then send all that stuff to another location and then re reintegrate the body and then put the neural signal back into it um do you remember the episode from ds9 our man bashir so this is the episode where Bashir is in the holodeck with Garrick and they're doing like a James Bond-esque holodeck program. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, like Cisco and Kira and a bunch of other, I think Worf and a bunch of other people are involved in like a transporter accident. Uh, And yeah. Right. And so their physical bodies are stored in like every scrap of memory in yeah in the station and then their neural signatures are shunted into the holodeck because it was the only other computer that was like complex enough to hold their brain patterns or whatever yeah but then they become like or maybe their neural signatures i forget i think it's the other way around where their neural signatures are like stored on the everything on the ship and then their body patterns or whatever are put into the holodeck and they're preserved on the holodeck and then they're able to you know, finally do some mumbo jumbo and like connect their bodies back to their neural signatures and then reconstruct them on the bridge. I don't know if they use new atoms or not, but I don't think like the atoms are the most important thing. See, to this makes identity sense in this to me that they would do this in DS9 because there's also a DS9, like I think it's a couple episodes where Nog like comes back from war I, I don't know and he essentially has ptsd and he's like living in a holodeck and everybody's like i don't think well actually nobody really seems to do anything but the holodeck program itself is like you can't live here uh um, yeah but it makes sense that these questions are in ds9 because ds9 is like the only 
Star Trek one where like there is aura. There is like people change clothes and they wear non-Starfleet things. There's like shops. There's this element of building things with your hands. Like Cisco is all into like baseball and he always has a baseball that he's playing with. Like mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. at this outpost where that endlessly reproducible mechanized lifestyle breaks down. And so they mm-hmm. start getting back into like handmade things. So for them, you can't live in a holodeck. You need your body. And like this idea of like we have to reassemble the same people that would make more sense in a DS9 situation. Whereas I think like in TNG, we wouldn't really feel the same urgency or even Mm -hmm. TOS. Also it's Vic Fontaine. I forgot his name for a second. Yes. Vic Fontaine is like the lounge singer. But I I also, I mean, I also have a problem with this philosophically because I think you're right in the sense that like consciousness has always been like the number one thing and like, your brain is the most important thing and it haunts this body. (laughs) But I think there's this more current pushback to look at how you like this phrase. It's not that your consciousness haunts your body. It's that your consciousness is embodied. They're not separable. Like you, Mm -hmm. you can't separate your consciousness from your body. They're not two Mm -hmm. separate things. So like, You can't just copy your brain and put it into some other body because it wouldn't be the same Mm, consciousness. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. Which I I think think goes all the way back to the very beginning and ties into this question of, are you the same person before and after you're transported? And I guess after almost an hour, we've decided the answer is no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, solved that one. Well, that's all easy, easy peasy. Okay. So there, but there is another, there's the one last uh, idea I would, I would say to, to preserving this continuity of self through the transporter, Christopher Bennett, he's a Star Trek novelist. He wrote, a blog post about 10 years ago now and it's called on quantum teleportation and the continuity of self um he so he's a novelist he kind of talks about how how you can you know preserve this sense of identity for him and some other peoples it's about quantum positioning so basically it goes into like the heisenberg uncertainty principle yeah. That says that. you can't you measure the pos- the position and momentum of everyone's particles cuz it you like change it by doing that. The more closely you can observe a particle's position, the less precisely you can observe its movement mm-hmm. and vice versa. So for him, identity is actually derived at a quantum level. And so like all your item uh all your atoms and particles in your body since they they start to like interact with each other right and like entangle mm-hmm. with each other so as you're as you're living and i think that's happening right now as we live as we go on right the particles in our body are like entangling with each other and that's how they stay like a cohesive unit so if you can capture all that data of like the position of all your subatomic particles and all that stuff if you can preserve all that data and all that information, like you're that information. 
even if you're teleported a billion light ways, a billion light years away, if you can preserve the uh, relationship between all your subatomic particles and that like entanglement, any space time thing is irrelevant, right? You're, you're still that same person. And for you, there's also a continuity of, of existence of experience between, uh, between those two people or whatever. And so like, I think this has come up is they have like a Heisenberg compensator. They talk about like in different ones where that's the thing where it, it, um, it makes it. So the Heisenberg compensator kind of keeps all your subatomic particles in line with each other so that you're the same person. Yeah. So that's, um, like that. I said that there's some physics videos that I catch bits of and it's called space time. Cause he talks about things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean that entanglement is the issue. Cause it's like what we've been saying. It's not just the particles. It's, even if you got them in the exact same order and the exact same thing, it's the way that they're put together, the connections between yeah. them. So. so, yeah. And then, so for this guy, he's like, I don't know, if Christopher Bennett, he's like, I don't know if we solved this problem, but like, that's a reason. He said, that's a reasonable thing for me to be able to wrap my head around this and able to say that these people are the same person, you know, before and after transporting. Yeah. So, I mean, I think too, we got to go with author intent. At sometimes I hate it. Like when people to like, if you can accept like Superman, people like sometimes will get all uppity. It's like, Oh, well, they can accept that Superman can fly, but they won't accept that he can shoot laser beams from his eyes. Like once you're kind of in for a penny, you're in for a pound. So if you can like accept the ability of people to go at faster than light speeds, you can also, it's not that much of a leap to be like, well, they have machines that can teleport you from one person, one place to another. And you know, the identity is, is consistent through, through both of those things. There's a guy, his name is Lawrence Krauss. He wrote the physics of star Trek. And he kind of said that basically like of all the technologies in star Trek, um, teleportation is like the most impossible. Like it's the, the it's extra impossible. Like even beyond warp drive, it's the mm-hmm. most like far fetched techno scientific proposal in in Star Trek. Yeah, I agree. And so you haven't seen this one yet, but in the Enterprise TV show, um, they have the character who invented the teleporters. Like on an episode, his name is uh, Emery Erickson. And they had, there's a scene where they're having dinner with Captain Archer and stuff. And he was talking about how like, oh, when I first started developing this technology, there were, um, you know, protests about it. And there was all this metaphysical hullabaloo about how, you know, is the person who went into it the same person who came out of it? And he just, they kind of hand wave it away and they're like, oh, of course, you know, um, you're the same person and that sort of thing. Um, there is also like a Star Trek novel um, called Forgiveness, where like the person who like invented it or like was inventing the transporter stuff is like transported into the future somehow. Like, or, like he's a 21st century scientist um, and he's transported like in the, the TNG time. Mm-hmm. And he was asking them the about TNG the teleporters time. 
Yeah, the TNG, the 24th century, I believe it is. But he's talking to, like, Dr. Crusher. He's like, oh, like, does this preserve yourself? Like, is it a copy of you? She's like, like, who gives a shit? She... It gets you there really fast. Just get in. <laughs> and, and like, uh, Crusher is like, oh, of course. Like, you're the same person as you walk in, as you walk out. And it's it's everything's fine. So don't worry about it. So, um, so yeah, I guess, like, in the show, they say it works. So. We shouldn't, we shouldn't question them too much, but I think it's just like such a fun philosophical question. It uh, is. To kind of noodle over. Yeah. I will say, however, one small thing you brought up Superman and I, once I started thinking about this, I could not stop. I accept that humans can fly in these types of universes. Well, however, he's not a human. Whatever. Whatever. Humanoids. Nerd. Uh, <laughs> They never wear helmets. How are their faces not constantly splattered with like bugs and wind chapped and like that? I thought of it once. And now anytime I see a human flying, I'm like, okay, cool. Now like a tiny piece of paper is going to go by your face and you're going to get all cut up. Yeah. No, I ruined it. I ruined everything (laughs) thinking of that. Well, too, like it makes sense for Superman because he's like invincible too right like the invincible but like right but like also as a person would need to have like the healing powers of wolverine if you're also Mm -hmm. gonna fly well also it's like super cold right so you need some sort of like flight suit something that'll keep you warm up there and cover your hands yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of great articles actually about like all the problems with flight or whatever or like if you're invisible Right? Like, if you're an invisible person, you're walking around, you're just going to start accumulating, like, dust and, like, gunk and stuff. And so you're going to be, like, like, sweating. Yeah, exactly. I don't, maybe your sweat's, like, invisible or whatever. But, um, but yeah. Um, We were talking about a list, I think, before the show started, but I was, I was saying how much I like the transporter because it's such, like, an efficient narrative device to be like, oh, hey. Like, we're here, you know, now we're just going to jump onto the planet, right? And you don't have to be like, okay, we're getting the shuttle pod, and we're in the shuttle pod. Oh, we've landed, right? <laughs> and then, like, every, like, set, you'd have to, like, bring on this, like, vehicle-sized prop, you know? And you have to, like, put it in the set and be like, okay, we landed, and blah, blah, blah. I do. I th- I think I also appreciate, from, like, a plot standpoint, how well-balanced it is between never being like a duex machina but also like it's never this perfect solution silver bullet fixes everything just transport them out of there but it's also mm-hmm. not breaking down so much that it becomes yes useless. yes like that's, they really balance yeah it doesn't perfectly. just like solve every problem it's useful when it is useful and then it doesn't work when you need drama and stuff so yes that is that is a good thing about it um but I think just to like the the best way to solve this problem is just do wormholes, right? Do like portals that you just walk through. You create an Einstein Rosen bridge, right, from one area to another, and then you just walk through it like walking through a, a a door, and then you don't have to be like, oh, is this the same person or, or not? Or I've said like this before, and I've said it again. Becky Chambers is an author who creates a very like realistic living in space world but it's kind of on a human scale and there's in i think the first book that she writes one of the ships that she's following 
it's their job to go around and make wormholes and that's mm-hmm. how people travel across these huge universes um and she explains how they do it and it's exactly what you're saying yeah and that would also yeah. make sense for like something like the enterprise has to go out there to help create the wormhole and that's why it takes them a really long time to go to all these new places but then you know they set the beacon or open the other gate and then you can you know wormhole back and forth real fast yeah it's a great like wormholes are a great way to like i think add some structure or like i don't know some some way to it it does set up a problem where it's like how do you get there in the first place and like if you don't have faster than light travel it takes you so long to get anywhere else in the in the universe or between star systems or anything like that um but but yeah it's it's, wormholes just solves everything just go the sliders route right do you remember that show sliders emily no it doesn't even sound familiar to me even what you don't remember sliders no, like not not even I it doesn't even sound familiar. Or Stargate. Do you ever watch Stargate? Uh I do I do know what Stargate is, yeah. I'm aware that, of that. That one's Stargate. all about wormholes too. Yeah. yeah. That that they have these The Stargates. These, yeah, the Stargates create wormholes between each other and you just but you are also like transferred you're like converted into energy when you're going through the event horizon of the wormhole and then get to the other end. I mean, the physics, the like, as I understand it, the physics of none of this is that impossible, except for the converting the matter into energy and then back to matter again. Like, that's the problem. You, I think it, it seems relatively plausible to me that you could set up a Stargate or a Stargate system and send, like, a radio signal through it easy Mm -hmm. that seems not difficult in the least but sending an actual human through is where i'm like "Mm." yes and this is like a whole nother problem or a whole other episode but like creating like breaking things down and recreating them or creating them like from energy is just like so insanely energy intensive Mm -hmm. like um i was trying to find this i couldn't i couldn't find this um but i was just like looking at like cern um, like that large hydron collider and they were able to make like a particle from energy, right? They were able to like make a physical particle, but it was like not even a quark. It was like a Q wave or I don't, I forget, but it was like so small and it took like insane amounts of energy yeah. to like create the, just even the smallest particle. So to like take energy and like replicate a sandwich would just be like, I don't know, like a small sun worth of energy to create a sandwich. So it's just like super inefficient. Also, like the 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 transporter, like if you're breaking down matter on, to the subatomic level, there should be some sort of like catastrophic energy release, right? Like right. there should be some insane explosion when when you do that. So so yeah. But again, this is a post-nuclear world. So theoretically, their energy consumption is a pattern or a creation or something or other that mm-hmm. we don't understand. Yes, exactly. Um, but but yeah, and like I said, out of all the out of all the technologies that we see in Star Trek, they've said the transporter is like extra impossible. It's like the most implausible thing. That it's come up it's with, kind of so. interesting then that it's the most impossible technology and yet it's like the most quotidian. What's quotidian mean? I haven't heard that like before. Like day to day. Ah, uh, okay. That's interesting. Okay, cool. All right. Well, that's that's all I have. Uh, anything else you want to say? Keep on trekking. Keep on trekking.
Goodbye.